0: He became a mathematician and in the 30s he went to the United States and uh, taught mathematics at the University of uh, Urbana, Illinois. Uh, He did not do economics during his professional career. But while his father was still alive, he helped his father as much as he could with the second edition of the Principles of Economics. Now, somebody should quote the German original title of that book, Carmenger's... uh, uh, the the, that was the original title book appeared in 1871 it's a historic day because nothing like that was ever published on economics before he just started from scratch and built it up and uh, it was understood that it was incomplete and he was going to come up with a continuation and uh, they talked about a second edition which would be more complete and uh, in in the uh, uh, towards the end of his life his son was already a university student and he helped his father in doing that but, uh, this is very, very unfortunate that the uh, cooperation wasn't successful. Certainly, was not completed in the sense that the second edition uh, never uh, came out. But, of course, the sc- scrappy notes and so on have survived and it was not possible to salvage it and make it a proper second edition. This is one of the great uh, uh, unfortunate things about the history of economics. Um, so that's about the background. I consider Menger one of the greatest geniuses of the human race. At, the level of Plato I don't mention Aristotle because I don't really consider Aristotle a very great genius he was one of those type of professors who were collecting insects and started (laughs) categorizing it but he made just too many mistakes and presented it as basic truth. So, uh, but uh, while I'm saying that, I must also acknowledge the uh, great thing which Aristotle did was to uh, to present logic, formal logic. The uh, he <coughs> Uh, codified the basic laws of logic, and this did survive, and this is the great merit. But what he said about other things, and the disaster is what he said about interest that's a complete disaster. So, I just have to mention this. Now, I may be prejudiced, so you know, I, I don't want to have an argument about it. Some of you may consider Aristotle one of the greatest uh, uh, fathers of science. I'm not not one of them, but I'm not really prepared to discuss this because uh, very soon we get to the level of discussing religion, basically what you believe or what you don't believe. But there are other very great uh, names in science and I don't have to go through the list. I would consider Menger at the top. I mean, it is really a, a unique um, achievement, what he did in economic science. And uh, so I have to start with this admission of humiliation. I'm, I am completely aware that I'm working or, or I'm talking about uh some things which only the greatest human uh minds have had success and that's Mangas. so i'm aware of that and this is a great responsibility and i have been working, thinking, writing, and so on, for years, and the more I think about, the greater my respect for Menger becomes, and I would like to transpire, if this would transpire through my lectures, which I hope. It, I know it will not be completely successful because it's the subject is difficult and it's so different from what they are teaching at universities and schools but I think it is worth to make the effort and see it from the other point. So uh, you have this handout, right? credit, I am writing this book I'm, I'll say halfway through But the course, the subject of this course is only a a third of what here you have the table of contents. It says book one, book two, and book three. Now what we are doing in this course is basically book one. I, I'm not following this in any and it's not even complete because chapter 6 is and uh, which one doesn't matter is is but whatever is there you can read ahead and I'm suggesting that you read the two introductions because this is supposed to be the second edition of uh, Lecture notes which I have already published. They didn't publish in the sense of the usual sense of the word, but I have given courses, lectures, and so on. So that was. Set of lecture notes, which no longer exists, because as I started rewriting it, I cut up the only few remaining copies. And but anyhow, there, I call this second edition. And there was a, oh, it's not here. The uh, foreword to. In the first edition, which was 2004, I thought we did have that here. Well, I don't know what happened. So many things happened to me during the past uh, few months. Well, we can certainly uh, make it available to you. That's not, they are not long or anything, but I don't see them. So, just to give you an idea about the structure, as I say, uh, we have book one. So you have that here on the uh, table, uh, detailed table content. And I'm titled this Credit Arising Out of Savings. Because the concept of credit, to my mind, has two great sources. And the first source is this. Credit arising out of savings. But there is a second source, which uh, a lot of or I would even say all economists ignore, especially today. I mean, in, in the 19th century this was properly acknowledged and legitimized, no question about it, that credit had a second source, which was consumption. This may sound paradoxical, but sure enough, there is a second source, and um, the great name here is Adam Smith. He developed the, what today is called the uh, Real Bill's Doctrine, and that is what it is, credit arising out of consumption, as opposed to credit arising out of savings. Now, there is a numerical indicator which tells you uh, whether the source is abundant or the source is meager. And in the case of credit arising out of savings, we shall see that this numerical indicator is nothing but the rate of interest so interest and credit arising out of savings is a concept and the corresponding thing when we talk about credit arising out of consumption this is absolutely nothing to do with the rate of interest that's very important to realize from the start of, and, 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 the beginning of this course, because what is the numerical indicator of the abundance or meagerness of the source? What is it? The discount rate. And today to say this is heretical, all, virtually all the economists today would say this is garbage, even, even in our own camp, The Ludwig von Mises Institute in uh, Auburn, Alabama, United States, uh, considers this a very great heresy to say that interest and discount are separate concepts. To them, it's the same concept. The only difference is that the discount is short term and interest the rest of it long term. And also perhaps the manner of paying this return to capital which is interest or discount. Because when you have a note, for instance, treasury note, it pays the yield, the return, in a different way. Now, the bond pays the yield in uh, by coupons, which is attached to the bond, and if you have a $1,000 bond maturing, say, in 30 years, then it has attached uh, a quarterly coupon for every year, so that's 120 (laughs) coupons, every quarter. At the end of the quarter, you clip off the coupon, present it to the bank, and then you get your uh, yield, your return, it's a fixed rate, okay. Now, a note is different, No coupons attached, uh, say it's a $1,000 note, one, one year note, okay no coupons. What happens is that this one thousand dollar note is at issue, when they issue it, is auctioned off. And nobody will bid a thousand dollars, but they will bid less, because they will bid a lower price which will Increase in value so at maturity one year from now it will be paid off by the full amount of one thousand dollars. You understand this? That you have a financial instrument which you buy at the discounted price and it increases in value up to maturity when you get the full face value. No coupons, no...
1: uh,
0: So, this idea of auctioning it off, you don't even know what rate of return you will get because it will depend on the the auction. Uh, If the demand is great, then they bid up the price higher, so the return will be lower. If the demand is slack, then uh, you will get it at a lower price which will uh, correspond to the the higher uh, discount rate. But the important thing is from our point of view here is that this, the cause and and the nature of that yield of that return is entirely different from the cause and the nature of interest and this is what our opponents are de- denying, and we'll have more we have a lot more to say about this in due course, but at this beginning, we have, this course, by the way, is not going to say very much more about discounts and real bills and Adam Smith, because that would be the subject of the second course. Okay, the first is strictly about credit arising out of savings as opposed to credit arising out of consumption. But I wanted to... Uh, warn you this is just half of a loaf. Our opponents would say it 's the whole loaf there 's nothing more to that it 's just a uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, terminology that the short term uh, inter short term interest is called discount and uh, this type of credit, this manner of paying the yield, deserves another concept. So, but that's all there is to it, and that's not. We are facing two entirely different theories. I'm just warning you in advance that we are not going to make that confusion. And later on, we have a little more to say, but be, really the job will be done only after you go through the second course. In this course, we are concentrating on credit arising out of savings. So, I We'll now start discussion. Oh, there's something here by way of introduction, so I will give it to you as a as a reading assignment. It's not long, it's only four pages. Book one has an introductory part, and uh... You f- did you find it after the table of contents there's this introduction, four pages all right? I would like you to read it so in the future I will uh, assume that you have already perhaps I just uh, say a few words about the highlights here. I think uh, properly enough I start with a quotation from the Bible actually it's not a quotation it's a story lifted out of the Bible. It's the Old Testament Genesis and it's the story of, of Joseph who, as you may recall, was traveling with his brothers, and and Joseph was the favorite of the father. Jacob was the father of... So what happened was that the brothers were envious because Joseph was the favorite son, the youngest and the favorite son. And they uh, wanted to dispose of him. And what they did was they tied him up and sold him into slavery. And they just said that to, to the father later, what happened was that the, these uh, bandits uh, took, took him and did selling into slavery. Uh, but in fact, what happened was Joseph got through the channels of slave uh, trade to the uh, pharaoh of the Egyptians. And he uh, was uh, working in the kitchen of some kind of lowly job and the pharaoh had a dream. Well, I'm just refreshing your memory, I'm assuming you're all familiar with this. And the, the, um, according to uh, this dream, there was a river and um, there were seven cows on one bank and seven the other and there's a very conspicuous difference between them because on seven cows on one bank were sleek, fat, very healthy looking and the seven cows on the opposite bank of the river were rickety uh, they were uh, not very good looking, uh, sickly looking. And then the interesting thing happened, according to the dream of the Pharaoh. The sleek, uh, no, the rickety cows came over and they devoured the Uh, fat, uh, sleek cows. And that was the end of the dream and the pharaoh couldn't make any sense of it and then he called called together uh, his uh, advisors and uh, scientists and so on, looking for explanations. Of course, they couldn't give a coherent Explanation, and then uh, in the kitchen, Joseph made him uh, famous by interpreting dreams of lowly colleagues with whom his, uh, he was working, and he had a fame for that, because in many cases this was confirmed by uh, what happened afterwards. So, uh, the word got into the ears of the, uh, what's the uh, the prime minister, (laughs) let's call him, uh, of the country of Egypt, and he reported to the pharaoh that down there in the kitchen there's this kitchen boy and he, he interprets dreams and apparently he is good at it because uh, that's the feedback which is coming so the, the pharaoh wanted to see him immediately and uh, Joseph appeared in front of the pharaoh and, He was told what the dream was about and now please give us your interpretation. Without any hesitation, Joseph said that the seven uh, fat, sleek cows represent seven plentiful years of harvest in succession. And the seven rickety cows represented the following seven year period where the harvest was bad. Not enough to feed the population of the country. Too much for seven years, too little for the following seven years. And the meaning of Rickety cows devouring the, the fat cows means that the uh, people in the good years, when the harvest was good, they were wasteful. They were uh, unmindful of uh, the that they might be pressing their luck too hard that there might be some bad years coming and therefore they had to suffer the consequences. So, he went on, Joseph, and suggested to the Pharaoh that the dream is really a warning that during the five plentiful, uh, during the seven plentiful years, they should put some away as a reserve, save, save, and that will be helping through the country the following seven bad years. But you need foresight, you have to See the problem, and you have to plan it, and so on and This sounded very convincing to the Pharaoh on the spot he appointed him uh, the uh, Czar of uh, economic Czar of the country he had full power, so indeed, seven good years followed. And Joseph, in his new position now, from a kitchen boy, he became a <laughs> top government official. He bought up the surpluses at a cheap price. As in good years, plentiful harvest means low price for grain. And built up this uh, store of grains Uh, Which he had control of. And when the seven, (coughs) uh, after the seven fat years came, the seven lean years, he started selling out of the store which he had accumulated earlier. And that worked very well because it was helpful to the treasury, the treasurer is in good shape, they bought cheap and they sold at a higher price, but at the same time there was no famine in the country. This is one of the great stories uh, in our tradition, because it's a message from God, if you like, directly. The message is that you've got to use your brain to plan ahead, and cover the contingencies, such as famine or f- failure of high risk. And, and I, I thought I couldn't start it with a better introduction than that. This is what humans can do. Now, true enough, some animals do that as well. Savings. And the first animal which comes to mind is squirrels, but there are many others. But even the English word, to squirrel, as a verb, squirrel, to squirrel away, Suggest that what is happening is that you save surpluses to carry it over and it supports the life of the squirrels in the winter time they find the uh, holes in the trees and they, you store there. but what scientists found, that this is very, very different from what we humans call saving because Oh, our savings are planned in a way and there's a lot of brain work going into this. But the squirrels, poor things, they do squirrel far more than they need and they forget about where they put them and they just have to work just as hard to, in the winter time to find the squirrel away the uh, nuts or whatever they have, and and then feed themselves. So this is a, a very great difference. And you think of the bees who make honey and then they keep themselves in good shape in the winter time. We know very well that they uh, save far more honey than they need because the uh, beekeeper. Has a good income from keeping the bees and just taking ninety percent of the honey harvest and leave the ten percent for the bees to survive in the in the winter time and If you think of it, this is very, very interesting i 'm not going to spend more time on this, but I suggest that Think of the Bible, story of Joseph, and think of the difference between human saving and animal savings, like a squirrel. And, and think of the difference between the two. And this is the beginning. You have savings And that is like providing for the future. Now, uh, uh, as I say, this is really a reading assignment, but uh, just to help you uh, to understand this, I talk about uh, marginal form of saving. And by this I mean that uh, as history developed, people found that they could save in different forms. They could save grain, they could save, save uh, non-perishable food, and they could save them in other forms. Metals turned out to be a good form of saving, and even within metals there was a hierarchy, more and more desirable for forms of saving, and the very top is gold and silver, and this is where Menger did his great job of describing that process, how the market evolved gold and silver as the most marketable goods which means really the best form of saving durable and so on but that doesn't concern us here. Now, this happened and gold and silver became money and then came government and government said that we are short of money so why not ban gold. ban? gold as money. The government disallowed gold to be used as money. Well, we know had this happen, but just ask what is the consequence. Will people then say, oh, I can't do my savings anymore, so I'm going to die. People know. People didn't say that. People went to say silver. And then, it was transferred, the role of uh, saving was transferred to silver. Government banned silver as well. Well then they picked something else, copper, uh, it's not important what they pick. The important thing is that they can always pick something. So the government is really in a dead-end street. It's counterproductive because there will always be something what I call the marginal form of saving. And to suggest that, oh, this is old story, this is not interesting in a modern complex, beautiful uh, economy like ours, and uh, that's for the birds, this, this story about marginal saving. It's not, because even today, there is a marginal form of saving, and to prove this, well, you just have to read this. Uh, that, uh, for instance, uh, you are a producer of some goods, and uh, it doesn't really matter what this good is. The important thing is that you look at it or consider it like a channel which has an input end and has an output. And and, um, and there's a more or less continuous flow of lower, uh, of, uh, say, higher order good that's the Bauwerk um, terminology, but it's not important. Uh, a higher order and a lower order. And order one is already the consumer good, but let's just say this is semi-finished, and this is also semi-finished, but at the lower order, meaning closer to the consumer. Um, this is a schematic description of production, uh, which, for our purposes, is uh, very satisfying and convincing. Now, there are two ways of the producer can do savings. Whatever reason he doesn't agree with the forecast of the economists, which call for a good year, and or the, he considers uh, negative factors. He wants to say he could do saving at both ends of his production unit, the input and and the output end. What he does is, he uses leads and lags, that these are the English words, leads and lags. If he keeps buying these ingredients of his production, faster than he actually needs it and has a little bit of store there. That this means he increased his leads. And when he wants to undo this, then he has lags. In other words, he is buying the inputs more slowly than otherwise because he no longer needs this little cushion there, so he will feed this store into the production. But he can also do this at the output end, leads and legs. And you read this and think about it and uh, then it's up to him to decide whether he wants to do one type of saving or the other or a combination of both. And whatever he is doing is we call a marginal form of saving. So this is just to show you that the government ultimately is helpless. They want to control money because money is the most marketable, the highest form of saving. And they try to do one after the other, but the Ingenuity of the human brain will always find a way out, so this is just out of the question that ultimately the government can succeed in, in controlling money. Because this would mean controlling the savings activities of the people, but there is just no way to do that for the government.